Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. There's got to be such juicy stories behind every single one, but then there's like a story behind the story too, um, where uh, these photos that are featured in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, front cover of David Bowie's box set, featured in South by Southwest in the National Portrait Gallery in London, um, they were uh, all packed up um, in boxes when Alec Byrne moved to Los Angeles and put into his garage for 40 years. And um, then a friend saw like an amazing photograph on the wall and said, who took that photograph? Lo and behold, he says, I took it. Now he's famous and acclaimed all over again, and we're all here to celebrate his work. Um, it's a wonderful book. It's gotten very well-reviewed. It has been called stunning, provocative, voluminous, gorgeous, deluxe, rare, in intimate, candid, incredible, evocative, and remarkable. Let's please give a warm round of applause. Wow, thank you. What an intro, my God. Um, thank you guys for all coming. Um, What's your password? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, 9090. 9090. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> You're all welcome to log on. <laughs> all right, let's give them a round of applause. Yeah. Okay, this all started, uh, my, my adventure in, in the music big started when I was a mod. If anyone here remembers what uh, a mod, mods and rockers during uh, uh, London days, if you saw the movie uh, Quadrophenia by The Who, um, it was all scooters, chrome, snappy clothes, and my life was going to clubs, concerts, uh, shows very much into following the music scene. Uh, when I was 16 years old, I answered a job advertisement for a Fleet Street dispatch rider, which sounded a very glamorous, sort of uh, exciting job for a company called Keystone Press Agency, which is one of the largest news photo agencies at the time. Uh, I was getting paid the sum of five guineas a week which is about $15. Uh, and the job involved racing around to news events to meet up with photographers, collect their film, race back to Fleet Street, uh, where the film would be processed and then it would be delivered to newspapers you know, from around the world. Um, so I used to hang out with the darkroom guys and I knew nothing about photography. And after about six months there, um, I borrowed a camera, my brother's camera, I think it was, and I started shooting pictures. And the first time I saw, and maybe someone, 
some people here have done photography, so you may have had a, a similar experience. But the first time I saw a photo appear in a dish, it was so, so magical, I was completely hooked. And it became an obsession where I just bugged everyone, how do you do this, how do you take that, what camera do you use? Um, and um, so I couldn't afford, uh, at the time, uh, Roliflex was like the camera that the professionals were using. I couldn't afford that. So I got the next best thing, which was a Yashica mat, which cost about 42 pounds. Um, and I, I, I had to get my mother to sign a loan uh, for the camera. My wage then was just five pounds a week, so about $15. $15. Uh, and I photographed everything. And across the street from where I lived, a new building went up with this sort of unusual canopy. Um, caught my eye and I took a picture of it and I sent it in uh, to the local paper. And they published it, much to my uh, surprise. And um, I can remember um, opening the envelope with a check for one guinea, which is one pound, one shilling, um, and just thinking, you know, this is amazing, I'm getting paid to do something that I love to do. Um, so now when I went to concerts and clubs and shows, I bring a camera with me. So I would shoot these events, uh, and I started sending in, after this great success I had with the local paper, I would send these pictures in to Melody Maker, NME, uh, which at the time, these were like the Bible of the industry, of the music industry. And this is before Rolling Stone was ever even conceived. Um, so I would shoot um, every single weekend, I'd be out doing gigs. Um, so I asked, uh, I, there were certain places you couldn't get into. So I sort of built a rapport up with the editor of NME and I said, look, if I, you give me a letter. Uh, it would help me get into some of these uh, venues. And he's like, well, we're not giving you a job, but we'll, we'll give you a letter. So he sent this letter to me saying I could get into a, my local venue. Uh, and that got me on stage and backstage. And when you think about it, I was a 16-year-old kid. And now I'm going backstage with some of these bands. And it was like, I'm just one of the lads, you know. I'm sort of in the changing room. Uh, and it was like, I don't know, I still can remember the buzz getting back in those, from those days. One of, the, one of my first bands that I shot was the Spencer Davis Group, and that had Steve Winwood, which you may have heard of. Yeah, so, um, and I was there to kind of get group shots of everyone, but I didn't have the balls to, like, say, interrupt and say, you know, guys, can we get together here? So I just popped off single pictures of the, of the guys. Um, and that was about the best I could do. Uh, one of the perks of working for this Keystone Press Agency was that you could use the darkroom. And the guys there who were doing weddings or girlfriend portfolios or anything, they would sneak back in at night, leave a window open. And of course, this is what I was doing. I was shooting gigs. I would go back to the office, sneak in through a window, print up throughout the night, deliver the pictures to the music papers the next day. Um, and this was really getting successful. So 
so what went from like maybe getting one picture published a month turned up into like getting two pictures a week. So it was like, maybe I should reconsider this day job and go full time. Uh, unfortunately, before I had a chance to make that decision, another weekend of shooting, printing, I fell asleep in the office. The morning guy comes in on Monday morning, I hear the door rattling and I think, oh shit, he comes in and I'm fired on the spot. So, I then go to um, NME and say, um, I'm available. <laughs> so they kind of said, well, okay, we'll, uh, we'll put you on a retainer. So you got a 17-year-old kid on a retainer with one of the biggest music papers, and that changed everything. All the doors were open to me. I had access to like BBC television shows, radio shows, and they were the dominant music provider to all of the UK teenagers, music scene. Everything was controlled by the BBC. So, um, one of the advantages of doing this was that, um, oh, I forgot this one. Uh, I'm sure some of you have been to this concert. <laughs> um, the fabulous Walker Brothers, Cat Stevens, Jimi Hendrix, and Engelbert Humberdinck, all on the same, all in the same ground. I mean, this is peculiar to England, and and perhaps was was driven by the BBC, who dominated the music business, because it wasn't unusual for listening to a music show on the radio where you'd hear all these people in the same show, which is why the Brits were really envious of you guys with your FM radio where you had country and western, or you had you know, heavy metal, or whatever you were listening to. We didn't have any of that there, we had the BBC. Which spawned this type of lineup. Can you imagine going to a gig, a big night out with your date, and you're going to see Hendrix and Humperdinck on the same bill. That's Cat Stevens with a gun, who had that, uh, one of his hit records was, I go, I, I'm gonna get me a gun, I think it was called. And the, the, the Afro guy is uh, Gary Walker from the, from the Walker Brothers. Uh, but who would put Hendrix and Humperdinck on the same bill? Only the Brits. <laughs> so um, Hendrix was blazing a trail in London. Everybody, when he arrived, he was pretty much unknown in America. When he arrived in London, everybody wanted to see, go to his concerts. Um, I managed to, the first time I photographed him was with, uh, when he was a support act for The Who, opening act for The Who. Um, when I heard that he was going to be on Top of the Pops, which was the television show in, in pretty much in Europe, I made a point of covering it. And Hendrix went through his set. And as he was doing this, I kind of saw off the corner of my eye uh, a guy standing there, uh, and I couldn't really kind of make out who it was because they were lit, but off stage was kind of dark. And I thought, hmm, is that who I think it is? Hendrix finished his set, walked off the stage, and walked straight up to Jagger. And I immediately went over. This is one of the only pictures, really, that I can tell you the exact date it was taken, which was May the 4th, uh, 1967, 
which was the day after my birthday, and I just turned 18 years old. So, if you look at these two rock icons, they're sort of rubbing shoulders, which is not a normal thing for these guys to do. And I can actually remember saying, uh, Jimmy, you know, could you, and Mick, can you just get a little bit, why these guys would listen to an 18-year-old kid with a camera, I, I just, is beyond me. I took one frame, and that's all I have of that picture, which is turning into one of the most popular ones in the book and when we do shows and everything else. Um, but obviously the Stones and the Beatles were the artists that were required to be, if you were in the music because you had to make, make sure you had access to, to any of these uh, people. I did hear that Jagger had signed on to do a movie and it was absolutely uh, close set, no media allowed, and I hustled and called everyone I could until eventually I got the phone call saying, okay, two o'clock on Tuesday, you're on the set. And uh, so this wasn't done on a sound stage, it was done in a, a residence in, uh, in Knightsbridge. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember arriving at this, uh, at this home and uh, just walking up the flight of stairs and it was like, a, it was fairly cramped because of sound people, grips, lighting, all these people are hustling around and I remember getting up to the second floor, uh, opened the door and there was Jagger in bed with two naked women, which I guess is normal. Um, so, um, and I figure, holy crap, this is, I don't want to get thrown out of here, so I better blend in. And I see uh, the corner of the room looks like a good spot to try and get into. So as I make my way over to the corner of the room, I'm getting pushed out of the way, and I have to sit on the corner of the bed, and I sort of turn around. <laughs> and there is Jagger glaring as if I'm trying to move in on his threesome or something, you know. Um, so I'm staying in the corner of the room and I managed to get some of the, all my all-time favorite pictures of, of Jagger and I photographed them, the stones, dozens of times. Uh, but this portrait, which I think will be coming up, is one of my favorites and it just really shows the, the, the magnetic power of, uh, of, of Jagger. Um, but then following... Um, Following the Stones, and uh, you had to make sure that you covered everything the Beatles or the Stones were doing. Uh, and then there was a fairly, not controversial, but it was like, are they going to perform? Uh, this was the Stones in Hyde Park in London. And this was two days after Brian Jones had died. So uh, there's questions, are they going to be ready to perform or, or you know, is Mick Taylor who has replaced Brian Jones going to be ready and so on. Uh, but it was a truly amazing uh, show. I've never photographed uh, an event that had, according to Keith Richards, there was half a million people uh, at this thing. Um, and and th they were some of the happiest times. Um, which then was followed by some of the saddest moments that I've ever experienced uh, doing the rock and roll thing. And that's when, uh, a few days later, about a week later, Brian Jones uh, was buried. And I'd, I'd met him and photographed him um, uh, three weeks before he died. 
and I just made a point of going and not necessarily to cover this as some kind of news event but because I wanted to be there and I just can still remember how devastated his parents were and you can see on their faces um, how horrendous the whole thing was um, Jagger of course was a no-show uh, Bill Wyman uh, and Charlie Watts um, showed up Jagger had left for Australia with Marianne Faithful um, to start a movie, I think it was Ned Kelly or something. But um, at, this, um, at this funeral, I had never lost a friend. Uh, I'd never lost a family member. I'd never been to a funeral in my life. So I can actually remember just thinking, well, hang on, I was, I was with this guy three weeks ago. Um, and now, um, he's in a grave, and I just couldn't sort of get my head around that. Um, and also, if you read anything, or, or what, what Brian um, Keith Richards was saying, the band were devastated. They didn't know how to handle it, because they never had, had a loss like this. Um, so this is the picture that really sort of gutted me, and I can remember driving back from, to London, uh, he got buried in Cheltenham, which is about a two and a half hour drive from London. And I was driving back alone uh, for two and a half hours and just thinking, how could that be? Someone's so alive and they're gone. So uh, this is one of, the, one of the one events that really had a profound uh, effect on me. Um, but it didn't stop me shooting and I then can remember like the following month, I think it was, I managed to get a photo session set up with David Bowie and um, we arranged to go to a, a park close to him uh, and it was agreed we spent an hour in the park and, and I was expecting this real artsy sort of edgy moody sort of character and um, when I showed up it was like David standing by the gate at the park alone no handlers, no roadies, no, when you do a shoot nowadays, it's hair and makeup and it's all the sort of palaver that goes with it. It was just David. So we, uh, we strolled around the park and uh, we were both South London boys, so I think we sort of clicked. So the, the one hour turned into the afternoon. And I just found him so easy to get along with and so agreeable. It was like David sit here, do this, lie on the ground, do. And he was just so easy to work with. And there's many times when you'll do a shoot and you'll think, God, I should have pushed for this or I should have gone the extra mile or, you know, this is one particular shoot that I just was, is one of my favorites. Some of these pictures that we, uh, that we got that day and I can remember getting a phone call um, from his office saying look David uh, saw the pictures and would like to use uh, a picture in his first tour which was with Humble Pie and he wanted at that time you got the tour program or whatever and they wanted to use that in the guide and I went, great absolutely so um, now if we I think that's the one now, if we fast forward 45 years or something, uh, David is working on his final project where he puts together a collection of records called Five Years, I think it was, and there was a vinyl and CD collection that came with a book. 
And the lead picture when you open the book is the picture from the park that we took that day 45 years ago. And just to note, he didn't get the picture from me. Uh, he saved it. And if you see in this particular book, you can see creases on the... This is not lighting. You can see creases on the side. And that's from the actual copy of the program that he saved. And when I found out that he died, it was like... Uh, I don't know. I, it was one of the few people that really took me back, like... How can he be dead and Keith Richards alive? You know, I mean, if anyone should have died. So, um, but we found out later that his people said, um, you're the guy who took the picture. We've been trying to find you um, uh, for, because they went ahead and used this in the book without authorization. So they then licensed a whole bunch of images and, and it, was, it was no problem. I was really touched that he would, for a guy who's been photographed a million times, uh, to save this particular shot and use it in his last, we know his last project. I don't know, I just, I just thought that was really something. But on a, on a happier note, one of the fun gigs that I ended up doing was um, someone who I absolutely loved his music was Bob Marley. And we had a, a, a photo session to do at his hotel uh, in London, in Bayswater. And I can remember, again, these were days when you didn't have a hair makeup assistance. I can remember carrying my lights and tripod and everything. And uh, as I arrived at the hotel, I'm getting out of the elevator and I'm trying to look for my, the room number he's in. And the door's open and he just went... And this, if you can remember during those times, this is when Jagger and Richards were in Brixton jail for having pot. You just opened, you stepped out of this elevator and the reek of weed. So you just followed the smell to the door and you knock on the door and it was like, Bob opens the door and he hands me a joint. Oh, have some herb, man. It's like, okay, and then, to be polite. So, because um, no way I wanted to get stoned when I was really expecting to do what are some of my favorite pictures. Again, photographed Marley a few times, but these are my favorite pictures of him. And this room, this hotel room, was like a blue cloud of hazy smoke was like three feet from the ceiling. And these guys didn't give a damn. They were just ripped out of that. Well, they were actually, I was ripped. They were so used to smoking this stuff that um, it didn't seem to have any, any effect on them. Now, I will, if anyone has any Q&As afterwards, please think of them, and I'm more than happy to answer if you, if you have anything you'd like to know about. Um, but now, this is the book that never should have been published. Um, back in London in 1970, my studio was, had a devastating fire and I lost thousands of negatives destroyed. Um, I then decided uh, the music business changed for me uh, when the punk scene came on and it just wasn't what I was interested in doing, so I decided to come to Hollywood. 
So I shipped everything in, in a container and put it on a boat and it off, off it went uh, to the States. And during the crossing there was storm damage, water got in, and hundreds of negatives were destroyed. So now fast forward to 1994 and I had an office on Hollywood Boulevard. Any of you can remember the Northridge earthquake? My building was red tagged and I tried to, the National Guard, if you will remember, it wasn't too far from here. Uh, National Guard were on the street and I can remember, uh, I'm thinking, I'm sure I can explain to these guys and say these are important negatives and they let me in and I can retrieve everything. And I can remember the guard saying, you see that building over there? That's a medical building and it's being demolished next week with people's medical records. So, you know, important negatives versus medical. Mm, I don't think that was going to happen. So I thought the safe thing to do was put everything in boxes, put them in my garage, and that's where they stayed for over 40 years until this man over here, Drew Evans, uh, we were working together on an agency that I had, and we were working on IT solutions. And Drew was leaving one day, and there was a picture of the Beatles by the, by the front door. And he said, where would you buy that picture? And I said, oh, I took it, and, and some others. And he said, where are they now? Are there in boxes in the garage? So he said, what? And, and he was running agencies and very agency savvy. And he said, well, why don't you let me have a look at this? So. Uh, my wife and I took off on, on, a, on a vacation and we gave a box of stuff to, to Drew and when we came back he said, you've got to show these to people. So, okay. So he then organized this one night show at Smashbox Studios one rainy December um, about five years ago and over a thousand people showed up. I arranged to meet family and I said, look, this will probably take about 20 minutes and uh, we'll go off and have a bite to eat because no one's going to be there. So um, by the end of the evening, I'd lost my voice. Um, needless to say, the, the dinner didn't happen. But sharing that event and meeting so many people who were affected by these pictures. One woman uh, was at the Led Zeppelin gig uh, that I shot up in Newcastle and she said, oh, it took me right back and do you remember the drummer? What he did? I said, no, I don't. It's a long time ago. I hardly remember going to that gig. So because they were stored for so long, I'm now that I'm exposed to it more and talking about it more, more bits of the, 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 the scene is coming back. But um, after that, um, we did, uh, this, this whole uh, Smashbox thing was, was a life-changing moment for me. Um, just because of the interest that we've shown and, and, and people, how they responded. So now, this is how the book came around, and now we're doing sort of these talks, and we're doing some shows, and in 10 days we're in South by Southwest for another show, so... Um, I don't know where it's going to go, but um, there are more and more, there are hundreds of other artists who are not in this book. Moody Blues, <coughs> Slade, Status Quo, Lulu, Dusty Springfield, hundreds of other people. So I think there might be a book too, I don't know. But thank you for coming. If there's any questions...
Do we have any photographers here? Anyone shoots anything? Shoots rock and roll? No. Nope. <laughs> Mostly try not to think about it, but every so often we'll come across like a contact sheet, uh, like of the Cream and Procol Harum and these bands. Um, and it's like I go back in and I do another search and another search and uh, they're not there. So it's, it's kind of depressing when you, when you think of some of the stuff, Beatles, that, you know, I, I, I have some of the images from Abbey Road. Um, but there's so many things that are, are gone and I don't know whether we'll ever see them. At the time, it was so stupid. At the time that if a magazine came on and they said, look, we, we've got the black and white, but we want three color pictures of, of Hendrix, you'd send originals. You'd send actually original slides to the magazine, which is how stupid was that? Because at the time when you were shooting this, uh, every single day was another event, another band. So um, you just assumed, will anyone care in six months? So it was like, yeah, send the originals. You know, I'm sure they'll send them back. <laughs> so, um, so we are finding. I mean, and, and I, some of my clients were like music, uh, music life in Japan, uh, music express in uh, in Germany. Sorry, Bravo in Germany. So, and some of these magazines were good enough to go into their files and return some originals. So we're still hopeful that you know, we, might get, we might get some of them back. But it's too depressing to think when you come across a great set and you think, oh God, Clapton, you know, portraits. Where, where, where are the originals? Where are, where are the negatives, you know? But, and the Jagger, the Jagger um, portrait, one of my favorites from performance, no next. That was a high quality print that I saved back in the day, and then we did a high resolution scan of it. But, um, so there is, it's, it's something that I don't want to think about too much. <laughs> so there will be, I think we're doing some uh, things in the future, but we don't have any dates yet, but if you give an email address to Drew, uh, here, we'll keep you posted on what sort of stuff we're, uh, we're doing. And I have no idea whether that was 45 minutes, an hour, or... Um, I also... I'm Please. just curious, if you started at 16, you were still, you were still in school, right? I left. I left at 16 and got my dispatch rider, very glamorous job racing around London. <laughs> so your parents were supportive of that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I was pretty much, I didn't get on. Didn't get on with school, so I knew, I knew that wasn't going to be an option. So, uh, and that seemed like a, you know, I was like a little mod on a Vesta scooter, and every single newspaper and photo agency, they had their own dispatch riders. So when you went to a news event, you know, I'm, I'm this mod in a little parker, and these guys are leathers on Triumph motorcycles, just leaving me in the dust, you know, I would race back to deliver the film, and how I kept that gig, I really don't know. And we found out how it ended, but um, it was but it was fun. It was better than I couldn't stand to be in an in an office or uh, anywhere. I had to be out doing something, and that seemed like a, a fun thing. And yeah, mum and dad were, yeah, if you're not going to do school, then do something, you know. So uh, that was kind of fun.
I think it did. I think you're less threatening when you're this kid, you know. Um, just what surprises me is that, you know, the Mick and Jimmy thing is like, I literally just turned 18 years old. And why they were these guys? Because, you know, they're in a big television studio. So it's like, you don't rub shoulders with someone. You sort of sang well back, and, and Jagger was there to really check out Hendrix. Jagger wasn't performing at this show. So he came there because everyone, the Beatles and their wives, showed up at the Savile Theatre to watch Hendrix. Clapton has been photographed many, many times at, uh, at uh, a Hendrix gig. So when the buzz got out that Hendrix was a wild man uh, on stage, everyone wanted to check him out. And he's one of the people that, off stage, the opposite. Mild-mannered, cooperative. Um, you know, could we do this, Jimmy? I've got him in dressing rooms. I photographed him loads of times, and it was like, put your heads, you know, together and uh, do the whole thing. And they were so cooperative and so easygoing. And on stage, he's the wild man. So, and other people you expect, like Keith Moon, who's a mad as a hatter uh, with the Who, um, you kind of expect that from him, and you kind of think likewise of, of Hendrix. So. Um, it was, a, it was kind of a, you know, showed a real human side to him that maybe a lot of people didn't see. Yeah. You know. I've mean, seen a lot of people didn't really way back, like, you know, put a lot of other shots I've seen from the similar era, you know, so it really comes through that you got them kind of, a certain mood came across when you take a picture. He did, he did. I, I, I'd like to think there was some rapport there, but um, he was just so in demand. And everyone wanted to check him out. What a great, what a sad for a talent so great to go so early, you know. But he was a he was a real fun guy. Anytime there's, I don't think we have it here, but there was a uh, a picture of him. Um, Chris Jagger made this. Um, I think there might be a picture of the jacket on there somewhere. Yeah, the one on the top. Oh, it is on the top there. Yeah. Uh, Chris Jagger made this. Uh, oh yeah, there it is on the. Uh, this jacket for um, for uh, for Jimmy and uh, and he said uh, oh I'm going to give it to him and I met him Jagger Chris on the way and uh, so I'd like to take a picture of that you know and they said sure come on so there is Chris Jagger handing him and Jimmy is trying it on and and apparently uh, I think Drew spotted this uh, the design on that jacket was used on one of Hendrix's uh, albums I forget which one. Uh, he forgets as well. Yeah, it's, uh, you know what they say, if you, if you can remember the 60s, you weren't really there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't think it was Ray, no, I, that doesn't, that doesn't ring a bell. But, um, but I remember searching through some images, uh, because the Google has been great for helping me with some of them trying to identify it. Not necessarily the ones here, the main ones, but uh, things like Aretha Franklin is there. Um, and it was like, you know, I couldn't remember when, when that. I mean, there are literally hundreds of contact sheets and shoots that I've done that I don't even know who they are. They're sitting in boxes, and I've tried to do some searches on Google and nothing. Nothing is coming up. So we registered this name, whoaryou.com. Do you remember the, the who? 
So um, we're thinking of putting some of these contact sheets up there and maybe someone will spot somebody and say, oh, let's see, you know, whatever they are. So, um, but that, that, that's, we will do when things quieten down a bit because right now we've got so much, so much happening. This book has only been out, um, I think it's two months. So uh, we're still very much in the, in the way of getting the word out. And, um, so why, why are we here tonight? But um, any, any other rock and rollers? Yes, please. Is there anyone in particular that really surprised you with their personality? Is different than the media good, good question. Um, some of the people that surprised me were things like, what your preconception is like with Bowie. You know, everything I kind of read about him at the time was, you know, he ran an arts clinic uh, sort of lab, arts lab, sorry, um, in Beckenham. Uh, and he was known to be well out there. So you're thinking, you know, God, what am I going to talk to this guy about? You know, so, and you had to engage and, you know, and I learned even at that young age that when you meet someone, you don't just say, whip a camera out and say, okay, sit there and, you know, start blazing away. You kind of establish a bit of a rapport and that way you're going to loosen them up a bit and then you'll get, you'll achieve more than just going into it. So there's so many people that you think, gee, you know, I mean, and quite often you have to control and direct because they're just going to go, okay. So, uh, to get what you want. I mean, some of these shoots, Fleetwood Mac, I don't know if it's popped up or not there. But some of them you think, these are crazy guys. And yet you, you go, you take them out to the, to the park, the Hyde Park. Oh, they're on, okay. <laughs> and this is, so there's no minders or people say, oh, they can't get in a boat. They might fall in or something or, you know, so you, you can do things back then. You could do things like, hey, lads, come on, this will make it interesting, you know, uh, which, I don't know, you probably need a legal waiver nowadays if you had to. And I don't know if, if you know what's involved in shooting rock and roll now. I don't know if you heard, as an example, like if you shoot a Taylor Swift concert. Now, there's like a, a four-page legal waiver that before you're allowed to take a single picture, that you don't own the copyright. So if you can imagine, so if there are anyone out there taking photographs, hold on to your copyright, because one day it might be, it might be worthwhile. Because when, when I was doing this, I, it, when I look back on work diaries, and, and I, I could kind of see, you know, David Bowie at Savile, Van Morrison on Tuesday, uh, J. Lee Lewis on, on Thursday. It was just a continuous flow of, of gigs. I didn't think it was ever going to stop. And I didn't have time to, like, archive the material and put on white gloves. And it was like, get that film out, okay, put it over there, and another job coming in. So, um, no idea it was going to be of any value. But I do remember, like, keeping on to copyright. So, if you're shooting anything, word of advice, hold on to your copyright. It might turn out to be useful one day. Were there some that you photographed who weren't really well known at the time and then since have become really huge? Um, not really huge, but one of the, one of the great experiences that, that still marked in my brain was being able to drive around uh, London and I would be listening to radio and I'd hear a track come on and I'm thinking, wow, that's a great number. 
who was that? And I'd get in the office and I'd find out the name of the band. I'd call up the manager and say, look, hey, I want these guys in the studio next week. And well, we'll try or you can do a rehearsal or we'll go to shoot in the park or something. But being able to have that much uh, uh, pull, let's call it. Uh, and sure enough, the band would be in the studio. And this is as the record was just being released. So you don't really know. Are they going to go anywhere or is it going to be a waste of time? So I would shoot the band and quite often they'd end up <laughs> taking a nosedive and you never hear from them again. But quite often you establish a rapport. Um, and some of the bands, you've, I doubt what you've probably heard of, uh, Mud, uh, Slade, um, oh, I'm trying to think of who some of the other ones were. Um, but they ended up getting number ones. Uh, Love Affair. Love Affair was a band. I don't think we have the pictures here. Love Affair was a band that uh, had a, they released a song called Everlasting Love. You might have heard it on radio here. Um, and um, uh, it was released and at that time 300 records a month were being released so to get noticed you had to do something so I it's not here we don't have it do we do it no. um, so I, I took them Love Affair and the record is called Everlasting Love so I took them to Piccadilly Circus if anyone's been there Central Piccadilly Circus is Eros the goddess of love so we got the band I said okay up you go and they climbed up the center of Piccadilly uh, traffic came to gridlock from all the way up Regent Street to Oxford Street and Shaftesbury Avenue. Police were called. Uh, hundreds of people are now gathered around. <laughs> and these guys are up on, on Piccadilly Circus. And we think, okay, they better come down now because the police are here. They were arrested. They were taken to Bow Street Police Station and had to appear in court. All the newspapers covered it. We released my pictures, radio, everyone followed up on it. Within three weeks, they were number one on the charts. I'm not taking 100% <laughs> credit, but it was, it, it did help. And you had to do something to get noticed because there was just so much. And back in that day, you didn't release an album, you released a single. And if that really got some traction, then it was like that appeared on your album, which was then followed up. So, uh, but it was, it was an amazing time, but um, I don't remember any of them starting out, uh, you know, small and ending up huge like Zeppelin or anything like that. But I can remember working with bands in these dingy pubs where they would rehearse because that's the, all they could afford. And then they'd go on to be, you know, top level recording studios and, and travel with them. So some of them, but, but again, you're 17 years old. <laughs> Some of the shots of the Beatles, they seemed like, was that, was that kind of like, like a press conference, or was, were they, or what was it? Yeah, some, some of them were. Um, uh, the Beatles, the Beatles shot, um, yeah, that was at Abbey Road Studios, where they did this amazing, at the time it was unheard of, they did this satellite broadcast from Abbey Road Studios, and it was linked up with uh, 16 or 20 different countries, and it was called All You Need Is Love, is a track they, they wrote for that. Um, this this was never done before. Nowadays it's no big deal, but but it was a huge thing. And I can remember uh, they were under a lot of pressure. This whole thing. But I can remember some pictures where they, they took a break and they came out for a smoke, and I was chatting away with Ringo and, and McCartney. Uh, and again, because they were the Beatles, you you tried to do anything you could. And I had more of a rapport with McCartney than anyone. Lennon was kind of a little bit difficult. 
to, uh, to get close to. George was a very quiet guy from day one. So Ringo and, and McCartney were the guys that I could get, you know, establish a rapport with. And I can remember McCartney, uh, he did a, um, a biographical TV show on, for ABC over here uh, called James Paul McCartney. And uh, I was uh, like the only photographer on that set for, for about a week. So that was, that was amazing, just to get them all sitting in a little boat. This is when they were doing Wings with Linda, uh, Linda Eastman and so on. So I can remember them, you know, uh, being fairly easy to get along with. Whereas Lennon was like very, very difficult. And even trying to get to shoot Lennon, um, the only picture that I have really of Lennon performing uh, was taken at Madison Square Garden. And with all this great pull that I had, and I could open doors, couldn't get a thing, no help. From, uh, from the promoters of uh, uh, the New York show. So I ended up just getting on a plane, flying to New York, buying a ticket, and just walking up to the front of the stage and getting thrown out and going around the back and going in from the other side of the stage. And that's where that And that was just taken from the audience. And I look back at it now thinking, God, that's not bad. <laughs> Considering it wasn't, you couldn't bring a big lens, you know. So, um, but yeah, you had to, if you were in the music biz, you had to cover the Beatles stones or like the, the ones that you went out of your way to do. So, we're not keeping anyone from dinner. Yeah, yeah, they were. I, I, again, because you, um, if you establish a rapport with their agent, manager, anyone involved with them, you manage to get access. Like with, uh, I got on very well with Robert Stigwood, who managed the Bee Gees. So I used to, I went to their homes. I did all of their venues. Uh, I don't think the Bee Gees are in, in the book. I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, are they? Um, Zeppelin had a pig of a manager. <laughs> he was a guy called Peter Grant who was the most difficult, obnoxious person to deal with. Which, and I loved the band. I bought the vinyl. I didn't sort of go along to the record company because in those days you went into any record company. They said, oh, the closet's over there. And you just go, dum, 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 and you walk out the door with all the vinyl you wanted. Um, but um, just, I couldn't get close to, to them. So anytime they did a gig, the only time I really did them was like, if I'd meet them at a reception, where they would show up to support another artist, um, or the couple of gigs that I did in, in I think this is Wembley, and, and another one up in Newcastle. But what a band, what a band to see. They were just, I think that's the partial reason why I've got hearing loss, is standing in front of a wall of martial amps, where you could fit, because you're on stage, shooting, and they're there, and there's this wall here, and you could feel it wasn't you could hear the sound, you could feel the drivers in the amplifiers, you could feel the air being moved against you. So um, that's why I'm asking everyone, can you speak up? <laughs> what would you say was your best year? Oh, God. God, that's now that one I have never heard. I've heard of best band, best thing. Boy, I, I would probably guess and say something 67 was, was just. So much was being released, so much amazing music, um, and off the top of my head, I am terrible. That I could remember that 
Mick and Jimmy picture because it was the day after my birthday. But I'm terrible with dates. I have to go back to my work diaries to think, oh, when was that done? But I, I'd probably guess like 67. Uh, but then again, there's so many other things like the Isle of Wight Festival with um, Bob Dylan, uh, who, who was in the book. Um, I think that was 69. Nine. 69. Um, so there's so many great turning points that, you know, uh, but I know at 75 is when the whole Sex Pistols were, were coming on the scene and didn't quite do it. After you've been brought up with Crosby, Stills and Nash, Birds, Dylan, all these amazing bands, you know, uh, and I covered a few gigs, you know, and being spit on, uh, people diving on you in the front rows, and mm, didn't quite do it for me. So uh, that's when I decided to move on to Hollywood. So I think we're we're done. If anyone has any, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for staying. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.